problems in America particularly affect people of color. But we should also bear in mind that these same problems also affect poorer white people and that the path to political change lies through building a coalition that's going to bring those groups together. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast about American foreign policy and politics for an international audience. The first episode of this podcast which I ever recorded was titled Race in America, and it was an interview with Marsha Chatwin about her Pulitzer Prize winning book, Franchise. Now we're on the 70th episode of America Explained, and in all the time since we've recorded many more episodes about how race and racism shape the modern United States. Today we're continuing that theme with a focus on one of the most subtle but pervasive ways that race has influenced the development of America, a way that once you see it, it becomes nearly impossible to unsee. Because today we're talking about the very built environment of America itself, the houses, the apartment buildings, the highways and the railways. This built environment gives us some of the most enduring cultural images that we have of the United States. You know, if you think of America, you think of rows of suburban houses with picket fences. You think of the symbol of the open road, which is immortalized in so much of American popular culture. And as we're going to explore today, these features of America didn't just happen. The development of them was intimately shaped by America's racial politics and the legacies of segregation and slavery. So thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy America Explained. And if you do, then please tell a friend and help us grow. So Catherine, thanks for joining me today for this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. So I thought like we could talk a little bit about our mornings. It might seem a strange way to, to begin this episode, but actually I think it really highlights some of the differences between Europe and America. So this morning I woke up, well, we both woke up and we live in The Hague. It's one of the most densely populated cities in Europe. I woke up in my apartment building and then I came downstairs. I went and got on the tram. I took a 20 minute journey on the tram. In a car, that journey would probably have taken me longer because the, the traffic's so bad. And then I walked here into the studio to start recording. What was your interaction with the built environment this morning? Yeah, for me, so I woke up where I'm staying right now at my boyfriend's, which is just very nearby to here. And then I took a very brief five minute cycle journey to this building. Um, and here I am now. And then Later today, I'll be going to Leiden, which is just an 11 minute train journey away. Um, it's so easy to get you know, between cities and within cities. And like you said, often it's longer. It takes longer to drive places because it's faster to cycle or take the tram uh, and sometimes even walk. Yeah, and so the Netherlands is a, is a place that's just really, really set up for transport by public transit and by bikes. And it's almost in some ways like hostile to cars. Actually, my wife yesterday just got her driving license here in the Netherlands. She, she's able to drive in America, obviously, because you, you, know, you can't live in America without driving. But she finally got her Dutch license. And we were thinking about getting a car. And, and it's actually, if you do the cost-benefit analysis, it's often just not worth having a car here in the Netherlands. You know, we might rent for short trips. Or we might maybe um, use one of these kind of, you know, uh, car sharing services around the city. But the Netherlands has been planned in such a way that encourages the use of public transit. And it encourages people to live also in certain types of dwelling as well. Row houses, apartments are very, are very popular here. Whereas the kind of suburban single family home 
only exists in very small parts of The Hague. It's incredibly expensive. And I don't even think it's that aspirational for, for many Dutch people to, to live there. And in America, the situation is, you know, very, very different. And, and one of the most significant areas that we see this interaction between government power and race and the built environment in America is in housing. And what's interesting about this is that it's not so much actually in America what the government has built, but rather how through regulation and law it shaped how other people build things. So in the US, only a tiny proportion of housing, about 1%, is owned and operated by the public sector. That's really, really different to European countries. So where I come from in, in the UK, about a fifth of all housing is social housing. Here in the Netherlands, it's about a third. Although it's true that some other places like Australia have have about 5% of the housing is public. But the US is definitely way on the, on the more private side of the spectrum when it comes to, to running housing. And actually, the reason there's so little public housing in the US is basically to do with this intersection of capitalism and race. When public housing was really taking off all over the world in the 1920s and 30s, America just kind of missed the boat there because it had this belief that the market would always be able to handle housing better. And there was an unwillingness to tax upstanding citizens and then use that money to house people who were seen as undeserving. But race was also a really critical part of the story because from the beginning in America, public housing has really been associated with African-Americans and immigrants. And those upstanding citizens especially didn't want to see public housing built if it was going to bring, as they saw it, crime and low property values to their neighborhood due to an influx of the type of person that they considered to be undesirable. And that that view was so often racialized, you know, and, and public housing was basically opposed because people thought, okay, if the government builds public housing at the end of my block, then there's going to be like loads of African-Americans in my neighborhood committing crime, basically. And that same desire to keep neighborhoods prosperous and white was behind probably the single practice which has most affected American housing and created this like idyllic image that we have of American middle-class life in a suburban house with a picket fence and with every family having, you know, what seems like basically a mansion's worth of, of space if you come from Europe. And these practices are called single family zoning and redlining. So that stereotypical American suburb didn't just happen. It was created through these forces. And what single family zoning basically means is that a city or a town can designate a large area of land as only been allowed to contain large houses which only have a single owner. So basically a single family would live there. And they block the building of apartment buildings or condos or row houses, which are the types of housing which are most common here in the Netherlands, for instance. And by doing this, it means that essentially you're blocking poorer people from moving into that neighborhood because they can't afford to buy one of these nice suburban houses and there are no other options available for them. This is such a big deal because truly massive amounts of residential land in the US are zoned this way. So for instance, in Southern California, it's something like 80% of, of land is zoned for single um family occupancy. And in many large cities around the US, it's about 75%. There's a really clear correlation between the places where single family zoning exists and racial disparities. It hugely increases racial segregation because being locked out of the housing market in this way is one reason that black families have on average only about an eighth of the household wealth of white families because they've not been able over the generations to acquire property, move up the housing ladder, and then hand that wealth down to their descendants, to their children. 
It's also important to realize that when you picture American suburbia, that even though it was built by private capital, it was shaped very fundamentally by these public policy choices like single family zoning. So even though it's true that most, you know, like we said earlier, 99% of housing in the US was built by the private sector, this kind of cultural practice of the suburb didn't just happen. It was a very, very deliberate public policy choice. Another public policy choice which really shaped this was what's called redlining. This was the practice where basically banks would refuse to give mortgages to black families who were actually, you know, even if they were able to afford to live in the more prosperous part of town, banks would basically say, okay, we're never going to give a mortgage to a black family to move into that neighborhood because we believe if that happens, it's going to have this knock-on effect on housing prices. It's going to have this knock-on effect on making those neighborhoods less desirable. And it's going to be worse for us as a bank overall because basically that's going to affect our profits in that neighborhood. It's such a, you know, it's just such a racist idea. It just makes your blood boil to, to think that this, the very idea of kind of racial mixing and racial contamination or, or something was seen as so potentially damaging to white society. And I think that especially the, the racial aspects of this, it, it's important to realize that those political forces also shape politics today. They're also very much alive today. And you could really see this in the 2020 election. So for instance, Donald Trump, who knew that his um, support among women, particularly white women, was slipping in the polls, made this appeal to what he called the, quote, suburban housewives of America by promising that if he became president, quote, you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. Now, I think, you know, it's just kind of funny that when he thinks of an American woman, he immediately thinks of a suburban housewife, right? Which is just, the, you know, is not really reflecting the, the reality of most American families today. But this was a very explicitly racial appeal to basically try to scare suburban dwellers into thinking that, you know, if Biden wins the election, then he's going to build a bunch of low-income housing in your neighborhood and then loads of, you know, immigrants and, and, and people of color are going to live there. Trump really has this talent for saying the, the quiet part out loud, and he made it pretty clear in the campaign that he viewed this through a racial lens and he expected his voters to do so too. Okay, after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to hear from Catherine about America's public transportation infrastructure and how that's been shaped by these racial practices. Welcome to another episode of America Explained podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Yeah, so really interconnected with a lot of what you were talking about is the history of car and rail infra infrastructure and public transit in the US. And I think that it's important to look at the history of it because, you know, sometimes people might assume that things just are the way they are in the U.S. or in European countries like the Netherlands with better rail and, and transit infrastructure. But we really got where we are today because of active policy choices. And the same thing goes for countries with better infrastructure. So in many cases, European countries were just as car-centric as the U.S. is now, but they really changed that, you know, towards the second half of the 20th century through activism and forward thinking and, you know, even more shockingly, a lot of U.S. cities were once more centered around transit before they chose to kind of undo that through policy. And so all this is to say that these things don't just happen. And they're really, as you kind of mentioned before, active policy choices. And one reason why rail and transit infrastructure is so poor in the U.S. 
is that since the 20th century, roads have been really heavily subsidized relative to rail. And for a long time, we did have a pretty robust rail network in the U.S., both passenger and freight rail, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And for a brief period in the 19th century, rail was heavily subsidized. But this all started to change, you know, in the 20th century as more and more people bought cars and then roads needed expansion and improvement. And in 1916, the Federal Aid Road Act gave $75 million to what later became the Federal Highway Administration, which still exists today under the Department of Transportation. And since then, the federal government has provided just massive subsidies for roads. And by the 1950s, thanks in part to the lobbying by the automobile industry, as well as just the massive popularity of cars in the U.S., President Eisenhower developed plans for a federal interstate highway system. And that, I think, really massively altered the way that Americans got from point A to point B. And it made it a lot easier for the emerging white, mostly middle class, to travel across the country in their cars. But at the same time, though, it made people more dependent on cars. And so even today, we continue to massively subsidize roads and car travel. And just in late 2021, as part of the infrastructure bill, which did, you know, contain a lot for rail and transit infrastructure as well, but it still apportioned over $52 billion to states for roads and highways. And so this shows that, you know, roads, contrary to popular belief, are not profitable and they're not, you know, just paid for by taxes and tolls, which is something that a lot of people on the right like to say, and they're really just paid for by debt. Um, And, you know, this federal interstate highway system is just one of many government policy choices in the 20th century that's led to a lot of uh, and perpetuated a lot of racial disparities. And so around the same time as the zoning laws that you mentioned, Andy, were gaining stride, a lot of poor people living in urban neighborhoods who were more likely to be black had their neighborhoods quite literally cleaved in half by new highways and highways were built on top of or through minority and poor neighborhoods. And this led to what's known as white flight, which is when, you know, white people sort of fled the cities to move to low density suburbs that were outside of the cities. And this, I think, really destroyed the urban landscape because it also coincided with a lot of cities getting rid of or cutting back streetcars and other forms of public transportation. And so it really changed the way that a lot of American cities look today. And there's this great Instagram page called uh, Cars Destroyed Our Cities, where you can literally see how highways have ruined so many American cities through aerial comparison photos. And so, you know, cities like New York or Boston or Washington, we might expect that they still have a kind of more robust urban landscape. But a lot of other cities that you might not think of, like St. Louis or Detroit, you know, used to also be a lot more urbanized than they are today. And so you might know or imagine if you've ever tried to travel by train in the U.S., especially outside of the Northeast Urban Corridor, that U.S. rail is pretty bad. Uh, Amtrak is the subsidized passenger rail service, and that was established in 1971. And in the Northeast, it's not so bad, but it's not nearly as frequent uh, as in comparable regions in Europe or East Asia. But outside of the Northeast, almost all tracks used by Amtrak are actually owned by freight companies, and Amtrak pays to use these tracks. And also in practice, freight trains get priority over passenger trains, even though they're not supposed to, and this means that train travel can be very, very slow. So just for a quick comparison, a few weeks ago I got back from a trip from the Netherlands to Barcelona by train, and that was a distance of 1,500 kilometers, and it took nine hours, plus a short little stopover in Paris, which, you know, is a pretty good place for a stopover. 
Uh, but if I were to travel between Washington, D.C. and Chicago, which are, you know, two of the most important American cities by train, that has a shorter distance of just 1,100 kilometers, but it would take me 17 hours on a direct train with no delays. And there probably would be a lot of delays. So this is a part of the country where rail infrastructure is at its best. And so compared to, you know, other cities that aren't quite as well-connected, you know, you can imagine it would be a lot worse. And there was recently a story of a train, I think, between somewhere in the East Coast and somewhere in Florida or Louisiana where people were stuck on the train for like 30 hours or something because there were just all these crazy delays. Um, and, you know, all of this, I think, is really bad for a lot of reasons. It's bad for the climate, it's bad for small towns, and it's really bad for cities. And I also think that, you know, the urban-rural divide would not be so bad in the U.S. if it was possible to travel more easily within and between small and mid-sized cities using, you know, public transit and rail. There is some good news in the pipeline for trains, though. As I mentioned, nearly $40 billion from that infrastructure bill will go towards rail. So maybe some of this money can go towards expanding service and bringing back a lot of these long-lost passenger rail routes to communities across the country. So yeah, after the break, we'll talk a little bit more about that infrastructure bill and some of the Biden administration's efforts to tackle these racial disparities that we've been speaking about. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. So over a year ago, the Biden administration passed a major infrastructure bill. This was one of the big accomplishments of, of Biden's first two years in office. It was bipartisan to some extent, and it was touted, at least in part, as an effort to undo racial disparities caused by past U.S. infrastructure policy. I think it's worth saying, though, that the, the formulation and passage of this bill were pretty convoluted both because the administration at first adopted this really bizarrely broad definition of what it considered infrastructure. So it included in there things like childcare provision or what it called caring infrastructure in an attempt, I think, basically to kind of smuggle more progressive policy goals in through a piece of bipartisan legislation. And this gave it very, very diffuse goals. At various times, this bill was framed as primarily been a climate effort. It was framed as been an effort to undo racial disparities. It was also framed as part of America's strategic competition with China. So there was this, what was to me like one of the bizarrest moments with the Biden administration where Biden gave a speech at a childcare center in Delaware and was going on about great power competition with China and how his childcare policy was going to help with that. So the whole thing, you know, then, so you had all these goals that the Biden administration had, then it went through the congressional kind of negotiations and sausage making that happens with, with any bill, particularly a bipartisan one you know, in a Senate that was very, very closely divided. So, Catherine, at the end of all of this, did we actually end up with anything that was designed to tackle racial disparities? And, and did it live up to the promise that the Biden administration put into it? 
Yeah, so there is some that went into it to tackle racial disparities, but you're really right that the bill itself went through quite a lot before reaching its final version, and a lot was cut from it, including a lot of major investments in public housing and community colleges. So ultimately, the bill did include $1 billion to go towards what's called reconnecting communities, and this provision is supposed to repair some of the damage that we spoke about earlier, such as highways cutting through neighborhoods, and lack of access to transit in order to help disadvantaged communities find better access to jobs. It's supposed to do this through projects such as new bike lanes and expanded transportation. But the thing is, in the grand scheme of things, $1 billion is not that much money. And originally, the provision was supposed to have $20 billion, but that was clearly cut down by a lot. And some of these reconnecting communities items were then later integrated into the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed in August. So some, you know... There is a bit of additional funding for it, but a lot of these items that were part of the original grand Build Back Better agenda have been sort of watered down and passed by Congress in a diminished form since there was such a tight majority in the Senate. And now I think it seems even less likely that Biden will be able to pass anything further on racial justice issues with the Republican majority in the House. And, you know, I don't want to downplay the importance of the new funding, but I'm not sure how far it'll actually go to fixing these issues that are so widespread and systemically rooted. Yeah. And this did seem from the beginning to be one of those areas where the Biden administration had very, very grand promises that were just not really feasible with the congressional majorities that they had, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think especially because the causes of these racial disparities are so deep seated. You know, you're talking about the legacies of slavery and of segregation, of all of those million tons of concrete that have been poured all over America to create its built environment. And none of this is going to get transformed quickly. None of this is going to get changed quickly. It's also the case that the federal government leaves a lot of this policy to the states and the localities. So, for instance, the building of public housing has long relied on local authorities to apply for federal money in order to do it. And those local authorities don't apply for that funding, so no public housing gets built, right? When you have the unit of government that is most responsive to the local desires of residents in charge of these areas of policy, and you have these deep-seated racial and cultural views that are opposed to change, that's a recipe really for nothing to happen. But it's very contrary to the tradition of federalism within America for the central government to dictate what happens at the local level in these policy areas. So what you are actually faced with if you want to change things here is that you need a a profound cultural shift. You can't do this through policy. You need to change people's views on these issues in order for these major changes to happen. And probably in the near term, the best hope is convincing cities to take the lead, convincing more progressive jurisdictions to take the lead. So you can see this one place that this has happened recently is Minneapolis. Minneapolis has been through an enormous kind of reckoning with issues of race and policing and inequality over the last five or six years because of high-profile police shootings that have taken place there. And it recently abolished single-family zoning on most of its residential land. So that's like a huge win for, for Minneapolis. But you need to recreate and you need to repeat that cultural change for that to happen elsewhere in America. It's very difficult to do it through a piece of legislation, however well-meaning it may be. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great point that a lot of these projects rely on initiative from the local level. And while there might have been a bit of a culture shift somewhere like Minneapolis, 
it's not likely that that'll happen in other parts of the country. And it was pointed out recently by the New York Times that since states will have the discretion to implement a lot of this funding, Republican-led states, you know, probably won't seek out projects that increase racial equity and they could keep things going in the wrong direction. And so in Louisiana, there's this highway expansion project under review that's received a lot of attention in the media because it would cut through this neighborhood of Allendale, which is 91% black, near the city of Shreveport. And at a forum a few months ago, um, this one state senator from Louisiana, Greg Tarver, expressed support for this highway expansion and talked about how blighted the area is. And he argued that the highway is you know, the only path to growth and renewal, even though it'll displace a lot of people. And the term blight is one with a lot of loaded history when it comes to urban planning. It was often used in the 20th century to describe neighborhoods that were seen as, you know, run down, economically unviable, and they needed to be kind of cut out at a risk of spreading the blight to surrounding areas as if they were diseased crops, essentially. And these neighborhoods were, unsurprisingly, usually impoverished minority and immigrant communities. So the solution was to unfairly displace these residents through urban renewal projects that brought development, but they didn't bring development for the people who lived there. And so to hear this state senator last year in 2022 repeatedly mentioning blight was pretty shocking, but also not that shocking. And the fact that the fact is that there are other ways to invest in and reinvigorate communities without displacing the people who live there. And so, as you mentioned, a lot of this takes place at the city and local level. And there's a lot of urban planning organizations like Strong Towns or state and city public transit advocacy groups. And those are the groups that I think end up having a huge impact on this rather than governments changing things at their own accord. And so the Shreveport project is still under review. And I think whether or not it goes through will be indicative of kind of how successful some of Biden's pledges to tackle racial disparities are. I think as well that this is one area of policy that brings up a dilemma that I think about a lot when I think about America's racial politics, which is that if you truly believe, as as I do, that race is one of the main organizing principles of American politics and that racism is an incredibly powerful force in American politics, then often the policies that you want to propose to undo the legacies of that and, and undo the effects of that are essentially not going to win the votes of white people, right? So if you frame expanding public housing as an effort to undo racial disparities, then in the situation you have where many white voters are motivated by racism, they're not going to vote for that policy, right? So you need to find a way of framing these policies and framing these ways of changing the built environment, not just as something that is going to help people of color, although that absolutely should be one of your goals, but also pointing out the many substantial material interests that poor white people have in common with with poor people of color, right? And this was actually the way that Martin Luther King came to view America's racial problems in the last years of his life. He came to believe very, very strongly that racism and capitalism were intertwined and that it was important to frame policies as helping the poor to build a broad-based coalition for those policies. And I think that's something that, you know, maybe on this podcast even, I mean, this podcast is not aimed at, at, at campaigning or advocacy, but, you know, we talk a lot about how problems in America particularly affect people of color. But we should also bear in mind that these same problems also affect poorer white people 
and that the path to political change lies through building a coalition that's going to bring those groups together and make changes um, for, for, for all Americans. All right, well, that's it for this episode of America Explained. Thanks very much for tuning in. Next time, I don't know what we're going to do, but I promise it will be interesting. So see you next time. Bye. See you next time. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.